True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of Season 4 and Episode 45 of the True Crime Fix Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. I would also like to take this opportunity to welcome Nikki into the True Crime Fix Patreon family. If you would like to join Nikki, then please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. All of the support really is truly appreciated. Also, just a heads up, this is the final episode of a multi-parter. So if you've not heard part one, two, three or four yet, then please press pause here and go back and track down episode 41 42, 43 or 44 respectively. I strongly advise that you do this before you listen to today's show as there's a lot of information which, if you've not heard the previous episodes, will make no sense to you and you will also miss the significance. A brief recap as to where we are. Three men, 30-year-old Mohammed Sadiq Khan, 22-year-old Shazad Tanweer, and 18-year-old Hussaib Hussain have travelled from Leeds in Yorkshire to Luton in Bedfordshire. There they have picked up a fourth man, Jermaine Lindsay. They travelled on the Thameslink service from Luton into Kings Cross St Pancras where they all said their goodbyes and went their separate ways. The first part focused solely on the incident between Liverpool Street and Allgate stations. The second part on the explosions at Edgware Road and Russell Square. The third part on the bus at Tavistock Square and the initial response following the disaster. The fourth part focused on the men who committed these atrocities. And we have also heard the obituaries of all of the 52 victims. Today we will be focusing on how there was nearly a second attack we'll be hearing how the police got it so wrong at Stockwell Tube Station. We will hear some of the testimony from the first responders. Finally, we will tie off any loose ends that we have, as well as I will tell you the story of how this tragedy eventually had a happy ending for one person. Just a reminder, the majority of this is based on the testimony of those that were there, so therefore some of the descriptions are extremely graphic. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this case has been dedicated to the memory 
of all of those that lost their lives during the events that unfolded on the 7th of July 2005 and also in part to Jean-Charles de Menezes. So I've teased in the last few episodes that there was another plot which was foiled by the security services and that for the past 14 years is what I have honestly believed. It wasn't until my research for this part of the story that I realised that the law enforcement agencies actually had no say whatsoever in the plot failing. I will tell you the story first and then we can dissect it afterwards. Thursday the 21st of July started off like any other as London was recovering from the attacks which had happened two weeks earlier. Stockwell is an area in South London in the borough of Lambeth. The demographic of Stockwell nowadays is completely different from what its origins were. The 19th century botanical gardens of John Tradescent has now been replaced by the high-rise flats of social housing estates. Stockwell was also in 1986 the hunting ground of Kenneth Erskine, the Stockwell Strangler, who committed the murders of senior citizens in London between April and July of 1986. After this episode, if you haven't done so already, listen to the true crime enthusiast two-parter on that case. On that Thursday afternoon, at around 12.20pm, Ibrahim Mukhtar Saeed, Yassin Hassan Omar and Ramzi Mohammed all met at Stockwell Tube Station. They had planned to attack London for a second time. Once again, it will be easier to pull up a tube map for the next bit. I have included a copy of the 2005 tube map in the documents on Patreon. Mukhtar Saeed was seen at Stockwell Tube Station at 12.25 heading towards the platform. He boarded a northbound Northern Line train and got off at Bank Station. He was next seen boarding the number 26 bus at Bank heading towards Hackney Wick, the same destination as the number 30 bus in the original attacks. Ramsey Mohammed was also seen on Stockwell Station CCTV at 12.25pm and he went on to board the next northbound Northern Line train. Omar was seen on the Stockwell CCTV at 12.25pm heading towards the platform for the Victoria Line. He boarded the next Victoria Line train in the direction of Walthamstow Central. The fourth man Hussein Osman boarded a train at Westbourne Park and boarded a Hammersmith and City Line train towards Hammersmith. The major difference between this planned attack and the one that succeeded was that the bombs failed to detonate. Ibrahim attempted to detonate his device on the bus as it was heading along Hackney Road in East London. According to the Metropolitan Police report afterwards, They said he was carrying a grey and black rucksack and sat on a seat towards the back of the bus with the bag next to him. According to detectives, he tried to detonate the bomb during the journey, but only the detonator activated. 
the bus driver reported hearing a bang followed by the smell of smoke. When he investigated, he said he found that the rucksack had exploded, blowing out windows at the front of the top deck. Ibrahim then got off at the Hackney Road stop near the junction with Columbia Road at 1.06pm during the subsequent panic and disappeared. Ramzi Mohammed's backpack also failed to detonate. Police said that somewhere between Stockwell and Oval, he attempted to detonate the bomb before leaving the train at Oval. Ingrid Goyan, who was travelling in the middle carriage when the explosion happened, said, All of a sudden, people from the rear of the train started coming into my carriage. Ingrid said her carriage was then filled with a nauseating gas smell that nearly made her faint. The train managed to complete its journey to Oval, where it was evacuated. When the train pulled into the station, Mohammed jumped off. People tried to run after him, said Ingrid. Hugo Calliat said that he was at Oval Station buying his ticket when a young man hurtled out. Behind him were passengers trying to stop him. In the police report, it stated that he was chased by what the police described as brave members of the public, but he escaped and headed along the Brixton Road towards Brixton. Mohammed then made his way along Normandy Road and Cowley Road, where he discarded his distinctive New York top at the junction with Moston Gardens. Police said he went down Cancel Road, Frederick Crescent and Langton Road and then was last seen in Tyndall Street at about 12.45. Omar's purple backpack also failed to detonate. According to the police, he tried to set off the bomb between Oxford Circus and Warren Street Station before fleeing. A Victoria Line train passenger, Ivan McCracken, told Sky News that he had spoken to an Italian man who witnessed the small explosion just after the train arrived at the platform. He told me he had seen a man carrying a rucksack which suddenly exploded. It was a minor explosion, but enough to blow open his rucksack. Everyone rushed from the carriage. People evacuated very quickly, but there was no panic. Omar was last seen in Warren Street Station without the rucksack at 12.40 as he ran towards the exit, vaulting over the ticket barrier and out onto the busy Euston Road. Hussein Osman attempted to detonate his bomb between Latimer Road and Shepherd's Bush, the station now known as Shepherd's Bush Market. Somewhere between the two stations, at about 12.25, police believed that he tried to detonate the bomb, which, like the others, failed to explode properly. A witness later spoke of hearing a bang like a pistol going off and seeing a fellow passenger laying on the floor on top of a smoking rucksack. Osman jumped off of the train when it had come to a complete stop between the stations probably through a window at the end of the carriage, and moved along the live tracks. After about 200 to 300 yards, 
He climbed down off of the raised area of track into a private garden on McFarlane Road before escaping and turning left onto Wood Lane and going past the BBC television centre. He was last seen running towards the A40 flyover a few hundred yards further on and is believed to have discarded his dark blue short-sleeved shirt during the evasion before catching the number 220 bus south towards Wandsworth. It is an absolute miracle that only one person on that day required medical attention and that was at Warren Street. Although the trains were not as busy as they would have been two weeks prior due to the time that the men had attempted to detonate the bombs, the casualty count could still have been significant. As I have alluded to, all of the bombing suspects got away. The Metropolitan Police now had four men who were on the loose in London, who had again attempted to murder Londoners en masse. And so began Operation Thesis. The objective of Operation Thesis was to arrest the suspects responsible for the failed bombings on the 21st of July 2005. The majority of the following information has been obtained from the official Independent Police Complaints Commission document which was conducted after the incident. At 4.20am on the 22nd of July 2005, Commander John McDowell of the Anti-Terrorist Command was approached by an unnamed detective chief inspector from the anti-terrorism branch with information concerning evidence found with the device recovered at the Shepherd's Bush scene relating to the identity of the suspected person. A South Bank gym card in the name of Hussein Osman had been found in the rucksack containing the explosive device. As the South Bank Gym Club was open 24 hours, it was visited by police officers during the early hours of the 22nd of July and it was discovered that Osman had given his address as 21 Scotia Road, SW2, which is the Tulse Hill area of London. Tulse Hill is a district in the London borough of Lambeth and it lies to the south of Brixton. This was also the address used by one of the other suspects of the second attack, which the team had learned about earlier. At 4.55am, Commander McDowell decided that an operation should be conducted around the address at Scotia Road. The brief that was given was that the officers were to control the premises at Scotia Road through covert surveillance and follow any person leaving the premises until they felt safe to challenge them and stop them. If the stops identified that there were one of the other residents of the flats, then the person would be questioned about the suspect before being released. The overall aim was to establish whether the two suspects were present in the flat and if they came out during this time, arrest them safely. A great plan in theory, and relatively simple to execute, surely. A unit from SO19, who was the branch of the Special Firearms Officers, or SFOs, were also in attendance at Scotia Road. 
SO19 provides specialist armed support to the police and highly trained SFOs from SO19 are deployed on pre-planned operations where the police believe that firearms are involved. They can be authorised to use deadly force as, unlike other countries, detectives are not able to carry guns. Commander McDowell appointed Commander Cressida Dick as designated senior officer for this operation. Another code name which will be used in this episode is Operation Kratos. Operation Kratos referred to the tactic developed by the London's Metropolitan Police Service for dealing with suspected suicide bombers, most notably firing shots into the head without warning. The tactics were developed shortly after 9-11, drawn up partly after consultation with Israeli and Sri Lankan law enforcement agencies on how to deal with suicide bombers. Commander Dick was given authority to permit to use this if necessary. By 6.04am, two surveillance teams from SO12 were deployed to the Scotia Road address to control the premises and to follow anyone coming out of the block of flats. SO12 is the code name given to the branch of the Metropolitan Police, which is responsible for providing specialist policing when there are threats such as national security and counter-terrorism operations. An observation van had a view of the communal doorway to the block of flats. Just before 9.30am, a man left the communal entranceway. On leaving Scotia Road, the man walked the short distance to the bus stop and got on the bus. He boarded a number two bus at Tulse Hill, which was approximately five minutes walk from the block of flats. The CCTV on the bus did not record the entire journey due to vibrations but the man was recorded as on the bus at 9.39am. At this point, the surveillance team described him as a good possible likeness to the suspect, Hussein Osman. But by 9.46, the description had changed to not identical. A minute later, the man got off the bus and then changed his mind and got back on again whilst using his mobile phone. As a result of the suspicion though, the specialist firearm officers of SO19 were making their way towards Brixton. At 9.59am, the surveillance team were asked to give a percentage indication of the likelihood that the man was the suspect that they were looking for. The team that was tailing him replied that it was impossible to do so, but thought that it was the suspect. The man got off the bus and walked towards Stockwell Underground Station. At this time, there were several surveillance officers in the vicinity and their leader offered to stop the man before he entered the station. Commander Dick initially ordered that they were to perform the stop as she had been informed that SO19 were not in the position to intervene. However, Having been immediately informed that SO19 were indeed on hand, she changed her original order and instructed SO19 to stop the man. However, by this time, 
he was now in the underground station. The order was relayed by the team leader, who was referred to as Trojan 84, to the specialist firearm officers, informing them that they want us to stop the suspect getting on the tube, and the specialist firearm officers were told that they were going into code red, indicating that they had the ultimate control over the situation and that an armed interception was imminent. The CCTV at the station showed the suspect entering the ticket hall at 10.03am wearing a thin denim jacket, a t-shirt and denim jeans. He was walking calmly and not carrying anything. He went down the escalator and onto the platform. Now, for the suspicious minded of you, I know that you are going to believe the worst when I say this, but there is no CCTV recording of the lower end of the escalator or the platform as the relevant tapes when seized by the Metropolitan Police were all blank. The Independent Police Complaints Commission report and the Crown Prosecution Services later found that this was because of a damaged cable caused by recent refurbishment works. At 10.05am, several SO19 officers entered Stockwell Underground Station and ran down the escalators. A minute later, they followed the suspect onto the platform. There are conflicting accounts as to what actually happened, but it would appear from accounts given in the IPCC report that the suspect went into the third carriage of the stationary train and sat down. One of the surveillance officers shouted to the SFOs that the man they suspected to be Osman was there. The man then stood up with his arms down and it would seem from the IPCC Stockwell 1 report that he was pushed back into his seat and pinned down by two police officers. The IPCC investigation team believed that the suspect did not refuse to obey their challenge and was not wearing any clothes that could be classed as suspicious. Then, without warning, aiming at his head, the two SFOs, only ever known as Charlie 2 and Charlie 12, fired their guns from a distance of between 1 and 8 centimetres away from the man's head as another officer pinned him to his seat. Seven bullets entered the man's skull. One misfired and one missed. The threat was secure with the use of Operation Katos. There was only one issue. The police had killed a completely innocent man. Jean-Charles de Menezes was born on the 7th of January 1978 in Gonzaga in Brazil. He was born to parents Matosinos Ottoni de Menezes and Maria Ottoni de Silva. He spent his childhood living in an adobe hut in the town. His father, in an interview with BBC News, said his son had always wanted to be an electrician. As a child, he would make electrical toys with batteries, copper and matchboxes. 
Jean-Charles moved to Sao Paulo to live with his uncle at the age of 14, attended high school and became a qualified electrician. His father said Jean-Charles had always had the desire to move abroad to earn money. When he was a child, he said, Father, I heard on the radio people make good money in England, the United States and France. If I have money to go, I will go. I will take advantage of my age and my energy to help you out. He arrived in the United Kingdom on the 13th of March 2002, travelling on a Brazilian passport. He was initially granted entry to the UK on a six-month visitor visa. On the 10th of September 2002, Jean-Charles completed an application form for an extension of his stay in the UK as a student. On the 31st of October, Jean-Charles was granted leave to remain as a student in the UK until the 30th of June 2003. The initial police reports and media reports tried to claim that he was in the country illegally, but, as was later discovered at the inquest, because he had entered the UK through the Republic of Ireland, he was perfectly entitled to still be there. Jean-Charles lived at Flat 17 Scotia Road with his cousins Patricia and Vivian. The property opposite the one that the Secret Services were staking out. You know how I was describing to you in the first few episodes how victims of the bombings were not where they normally were at the time of the morning. It is the same for Jean-Charles. He had made arrangements the evening prior with a friend to meet him at Kilburn Station between 9 and 9.30am on the Friday morning to give him an estimate for an electrical job that he wanted done. His friend called Jean-Charles at 8.45 on the morning of the 22nd of July and he was informed by Jean-Charles that he had got up late and would be with him in approximately one hour. He then received another call from Jean-Charles approximately 30 minutes later, informing him that the tube was not working and that he would have to catch a bus. Following the fatal shooting of Jean-Charles, there was a certain amount of panic involving the other passengers on the Northern Line and also the passengers using the station for the purpose of catching the Victoria Line services. While the words spoken by police officers entering the train may be in dispute, the message to the passengers on board the train was clearly to leave immediately. A number of them just abandoned their luggage and personal belongings and ran. Following his death, the body of Jean Charles was formally identified at 7.30pm on Saturday the 23rd of July 2005 at Greenwich Public Mortuary by his cousin Alex Alves Pereira. I'm going to add the two IPCC reports to the week's reference documents which will detail the over 300 page investigation into what happened but I'll give you the shortened version of the investigation. The Metropolitan Police is obliged by law to refer any arrest which results in the death of a suspect 
to the Independent Police Complaints Commission, so therefore the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes was referred. The six-month investigation, which cost £304,000, led to the prosecution of the Met under health and safety legislation. The inquiry was split into two parts, Stockwell 1 and Stockwell 2. In the first IPCC investigation, known as Stockwell 1, the aim was to scrutinise the circumstances in which John Charles was shot dead by police, which included the evidence that you have already heard today. The 167-page report put under a microscope a catalogue of shortcomings by the police, including confusion, substandard communications, poor decisions and a lack of resources. Officials said they interviewed 15 officers under caution for offences ranging from murder to misconduct and attempting to pervert the course of justice. It highlighted how officers failed to take advantage of the 30-minute window which was described earlier to correctly identify whether Jean Charles was a potential suicide bomber. The report also criticised the practice of allowing officers to confer before making statements and highlighted how a critical surveillance log was changed. Basically, the two officers known only as Charlie 2 and Charlie 12, who had a combined 42 years experience working for the Metropolitan Police, were allowed to go back to base together before giving their statements. But the IPCC's most damaging criticisms were reserved for the Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis, the highest ranking Met Police officer, Sir Ian Blair, who was accused of causing much of the avoidable difficulty after the shooting. This referred to his decision to block IPCC investigators for three days. Stockwell II, on the other hand, was only a minor inquiry focusing on a complaint made by the de Menezes family about their treatment by the police in the days after the shooting. The main points of their complaint focused on the delay in informing them of Jean Charles's death and that their phone calls were temporarily restricted. Investigators found there were sound operational reasons for holding back information of Jean Charles's death and dismissed their complaint. The key charge that did come out of this report, however, was that they released inaccurate information and failed to correct false information about the shooting reported in the media. It found that although Sir Ian Blair and others did not deliberately mislead the public, there were serious weaknesses in how the force handled critical information. Officials also disclosed that although several senior officers knew an innocent man was dead, Sir Ian Blair remained almost totally uninformed until the next day. Officials said Andy Heyman, who had been so publicly praised by Charles Clark two weeks earlier, as explained in part three, should face disciplinary action after he failed to pass on information that the victim was not connected to terrorism. Inconsistencies 
between what he told reporters and a later meeting of senior officials were disclosed. As a result, Andy Heyman took early retirement in December. The Independent Police Complaints Commission decided in 2007 that no disciplinary action should be pursued against any of the frontline and surveillance officers since there were no realistic prospects of any disciplinary charges being upheld. The inquiry left a bad taste in everyone's mouth and the trust for the police at the time was at an all-time low. There were allegations that the commanding officer on that day, Commander Dick, had notes deleted before the inquiry, but this was unproven. There were allegations of the police manipulating a photo of Jean-Charles so that his facial shape and skin tone matched that of Hussein Osman. The picture that appeared did show signs of manipulation, but whether that was done at source or by the person who produced the pictures, no one will ever know for certain. The legal ramifications of this trial were still going on until 2016. The Crown Prosecution Service decided in 2006 that no individual should face charges. The challenge to the CPS's refusal to prosecute the officers was brought by Patricia Amani da Silva, who was Jean Charles's cousin. The case was heard at the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, France, which deals with cases potentially affecting interpretation of the European Convention on Human Rights. By a majority of 13 to 4, the judges ruled that the UK had not violated Article 2 of the Convention, which guarantees the right to life. The dissenting judges were from Turkey, Russia, Poland and Spain. The judgment read, The decision not to prosecute any individual officer was not due to any failings in the investigation or the state's tolerance of or collusion in unlawful acts. Rather, it was due to the fact that, following the thorough investigation, a prosecutor had considered all of the facts of the case and concluded that there was insufficient evidence against any individual officer to prosecute. The court acknowledged that all of the UK independent authorities that had investigated the actions of the two firearms officers had carefully examined the reasonableness of the belief that John Charles de Menezes had been a suicide bomber who could detonate a bomb at any second. The Metropolitan Police Authority was, however, found liable under the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974 for Jean Charles's death due to failings in the operation's planning and implementation. They were fined £175,000 plus £385,000 costs, but in a proviso to the verdict, which was endorsed by the judge, the jury absolved the officer in charge of the operation of any personal culpability of the events. At the inquest in 2008, the jury returned an open verdict after the coroner had excluded unlawful killing from the list of possible verdicts. The family also pursued a civil action 
which resulted in a confidential settlement in 2009. Responding to the judgment of the European Court of Human Rights, a statement was issued through the Attorney General's office. It said, The government considers that the Strasbourg Court has handed down the right judgment. The facts of this case are tragic, but the government considers that the court has upheld the important principle that individuals are only prosecuted where there is a realistic prospect of conviction. Just a quick side note for those who are regular listeners to the podcast. The Queen's Counsel, in charge of defending the Metropolitan Police in the legal cases, was Ronald Thwaites QC, the same man who had defended Tracy Andrews. In one of the hearings at the Old Bailey, Mr Thwaites QC tried to convince a jury that the innocent Brazilian man was behaving in a way that would have been expected of a suicide bomber. Ultimately though, in 2009, the Metropolitan Police agreed to pay compensation to the family. In return, the relatives of Jean Charles agreed to end their legal action. The sum of money involved in the settlement was believed to be just above £100,000, or at the time $182,000. In addition, the family's substantial legal costs would be paid. After the settlement, neither side commented on claims in the UK tabloids that the compensation was less than it otherwise would have been because the Dimonezes family came from a poor, poverty-stricken area of Brazil. So back to the investigation into the failed bombings. On the 23rd of July, a suspect package was found in the bushes in a sports ground known as Little Wormwood Scrubs, the playing fields which are near the prison. It was subjected to a controlled explosion and upon investigation appeared to have been a further bomb made to the same design as the other ones used on the 21st of July. It appeared as though the attacker who had this one had had a change of heart. The design of the bombs that the men used were relatively basic and definitely homemade. The main explosive charge in the devices consisted of liquid hydrogen peroxide concentrated to an intended strength of 70%, mixed to a ratio of 70 to 30 with japati flour. The flour provided the fuel which would burn. The hydrogen peroxide brought oxygen to the mixture, which would explode when fired by the detonator. The main explosive charge was placed in a 6.25 litre plastic tub with a lid. Depending on how full the tub was, it would give the main explosive charge a weight in the region of 5 to 6 kilograms, possibly even more. A really powerful device. The detonator was the high explosive triacetone triperoxide mixture otherwise known as TATP. This mixture was not manufactured commercially, but can be made by mixing liquid hydrogen peroxide, acetone and acid. The detonator was packaged by constructing a tube from part of the front cover of an A4 pad or something similar, sealed at one end with masking tape. 
It appeared that the same pad had been used by Mohammed to write his suicide note. The TATP was then poured into the tube and a modified screw-in torch bulb screwed into a small bulb holder was inserted into the base of the tube and sealed. Wires were attached to two holes in the bulb holder and the full tube was inserted through a hole made in the bottom of the 6.25 litre container and sealed in place. The modification to the bulb included making a hole in the glass and inserting a small amount of TATP which would have been in contact with or close to the wire filament. The ends of the wires were stripped and attached to the wires of a 9 volt battery snap connector. The concept was that when the snap connector was in contact with the two terminals of the 9 volt battery, the current would pass along the wires into the filament of the bulb. This would heat up and cause the TATP within the glass of the bulb to explode and, in turn, the remainder of the TATP in the detonator tube would set off the main charge. Shrapnel was added to the outside of the plastic tub. About 80 screws, tacks, washers or nuts were attached to it. An attempt to maximise the possibility of injury to everyone in the vicinity. Each bomb was hidden in the rucksacks, which had been modified by the addition of a slit in the back which through the wires from the bulb holder and the snap connector were fed. These were fed through a slit in the would-be bomber's clothing, thus enabling them to bring the snap connector into contact with the 9-volt battery and set off the bomb. Following a huge manhunt using the types of resources as described in the errant execution of Jean Charles, within eight days of the attempted attack, two of the bombers were arrested in London, one in Birmingham and one in Rome. The suspected fifth bomber, Manfu Kwaku Asaidu, had handed himself in to the police the day before the other four were arrested. A sixth man was also arrested and brought to trial. Adele Yaya was arrested on the 20th of December 2005 and stood trial with the men. When it came to the trial, a lot more was learnt about the individuals. The trial began on the 15th of January 2007 at Woolwich Crown Court in London. Mr Nigel Sweeney QC was acting on behalf of the Crown Prosecution Service. The judge, Mr Justice Adrian Fulford, was presiding. George Carter-Stevenson QC was a barrister representing Mukhtar Saeed Ibrahim. Anthony Jennings QC was the barrister for Hussein Osman. Peter Carter QC was the barrister for Yassin Omar. And Stephen Williamson QC was the barrister for Ramsey Mohammed. The jury consisted of nine women and three men, and they were warned by Justice Fulford not to be swayed by any feelings that they had in relation to 7-7. The public had been understandably frightened and concerned about the possibility of terror events occurring so close to home, the judge said. 
you must remain wholly unaffected by any emotion, and you must be wholly unaffected by any feelings of apprehension that you might have had in 2005, the judge stated in his opening. The judge told the jurors that the primary question was whether the defendants had intended to kill or cause serious injury or damage to property. It is not only whether killing or causing serious injury to people is justified on the basis of any ideology or belief, he said. The court heard how it was believed that Mukhtar Ibrahim was the ringleader in the conspiracy to bomb London's transport network on the 21st of July 2005. He was born Mukhtar Saeed Ibrahim in Asmara in what is now known as Eritrea in Africa in January 1978. He grew up in Eritrea which at the time was fighting a war of independence against neighbouring Ethiopia. He arrived in the UK in 1990 and lived in Stoke Newington in North London. He eventually gained British citizenship. He had a few run-ins with the law in the 1990s. Firstly, in June 1993, he was convicted of indecent assault as a 15-year-old. Two years later, he was involved in two robberies. Then, he was involved in a gang-related attack in the town of Hartford, which ultimately led to Ibrahim being imprisoned in Feltham Young Offenders Institute for five years. Subsequently, he was released in 1998, and he appeared to be trying to sort out his life. He began working in a shopping centre, in restaurants, and then as a market trader. Then something changed. Mukhtar Ibrahim became infatuated by the growing Islamist political scene in London. Two of the growing figures on this stage were the Finsbury Park Mosque's radical preacher Abu Hamza and Sheikh Omar Bakri Mohammed, who was the founder of the Al Mujarum movement, which we discussed in episode 10. Not a lot is known about these men in general, but he is known to have attended Finsbury Park Mosque to listen to Abu Hamza and, along with others, had tapes of sermons by the same man who had influenced Jermaine Lindsay, Abdullah El Faisal. In 2003, Ibrahim made the trip to the African country of Sudan and upon returning to Britain made it clear to some friends that he received jihadi training, having learnt to fire rocket-propelled grenades. At the trial, one of the prosecution's key witnesses was a man known by the pseudonym Bex Hill, as his real name was kept secret under the Witness Protection Programme. Bex Hill told the jury that he had been close to many of the men. He said Ibrahim told him that he was going to do jihad and added, he told me that maybe I wouldn't see him again. Maybe we are going to see each other in heaven. In late 2004, Ibrahim was again in trouble with the police as he was charged over a confrontation as he was trying to distribute Islamic literature in London's Oxford Street. 
but he fled to Pakistan before the court case could be heard. On his journey, Ibrahim and his travelling partners were questioned by authorities at Heathrow due to their unusual luggage. They were found to be carrying clothes specifically designed for extreme cold weather and camping equipment along with notes on how to deal with ballistic injuries. Although they were stopped, the explanation given to the authorities was sufficient and they were allowed to continue their journey. The court then heard how he had stayed there until March 2005. Stephen Camlish QC, who was the barrister for Manfua Sayadu, the fifth man whom allegedly had dumped his package, suggested in court that the purpose of this trip was jihadi training. He also pointed out that Ibrahim was in Pakistan at the same time as Muhammad Sadiq Khan and Shahzad Tanweer. Ibrahim denied ever meeting them, but the barrister asked him, There is a question mark whether or not the only two ever known bombs made from hydrogen peroxide are the 7-7 and the 21-7 bombs. You were in Pakistan at the same time as Khan and Tanweer. You see the coincidence, don't you? Ibrahim replied, When you say this as fact, yes. Ibrahim claimed he learnt how to build the devices from a video downloaded to a CD from a well-known extremist website run out of London. The defence which the men were going for throughout the trial was one of a hoax, a fake bomb which would be used just to scare the public. Even though the investigation team uncovered a plethora of other material from various addresses linked to Ibrahim, they never found this CD that he claimed to have. Ibrahim said that the CD was a key part of his planned hoax because it allowed him to design the bombs to be as realistic as possible but never capable of detonating. The authorities, however, disagreed and elaborated on the fact that, in the view of counter-terrorism officers, it was down to pure good fortune for its intended victims, rather than any claimed intention to scare rather than kill, that the bombs failed to detonate. Ramzi Mohammed was born in Somalia in October 1981. He was born during the time of the civil war in the country and he ended up as a young boy in a refugee camp. He had arrived in the UK via Kenya on the 15th of September 1998. He was initially put in the care of social services in Slough, Berkshire, but when he reached the age of 18, he got a flat of his own in the West London suburb of Hayes. In 2001, Mohammed studied IT and also obtained a job in a bar in Waterloo Station. At this time, Mohammed was a Muslim by heritage only. He drank and went clubbing and openly flirted with members of the opposite sex without ever having his parents' religion as a part of his life. The court heard how in 2003, Mohammed became more interested in Islam and started attending a mosque and going to Hyde Park Corner to listen to various speakers talk about religion and politics. 
he met a Swedish woman of Eritrean origin, and together they had two children. Although he would spend much of his time with his partner and their children, he would rarely stay the night and would go back to a property that he had in Dalgarno Gardens, North Kensington, to sleep. He was granted indefinite leave to remain in the UK in April 2005. The court heard how, on the surface, he appeared to be a hard-working family man who had recently decorated his flat, but, in reality, he harboured ill feelings to his fellow human beings, committed with the others to become what he regarded as a martyr for all Muslims. By January 2004, he had begun associating with Mukhtar Ibrahim and Yasin Omar, and was also regularly attending sermons by radical preacher Abu Hamza at Finsbury Park Mosque. He would attend a weekly meeting of like-minded Muslims in East London, a circle to which other members of the conspiracy belong. As a side note, I've referred to Abu Hamza quite a bit today. If you feel inclined to have a read about some of the atrocities that the man has committed, he is currently serving life in prison in a Colorado jail. By this time, Mohammed had given up his bar work out of religious considerations and he became an assistant manager at a branch of the American bagel factory chain. But he subsequently gave up that job as well because it involved working with bacon. Eventually, he got a job with a merchandising firm called MSF. His flat was the base from which some of the 21st of July bombers set out on what they believed would be their final journey. Before he left for what he believed to be his final journey, he penned a suicide note which was supposed to be read by his girlfriend and their two young children. In it, he wrote, My family, do not cry for me, but instead rejoice in happiness and love. What I have done is for the sake of Allah, for he loves those who fight in his sake. He told his sons, Be good Muslims, and you shall see me again in paradise, God willing. His father had been forcibly enlisted into one of the warring militias. As he and his brother grew older, his mother feared that they would meet the same fate. After his bomb failed to go off at the Oval, Muhammad panicked and travelled back to his flat by bus, leaving his Fiat Punto parked in a street in Stockwell. When he heard about the death of Jean-Charles de Menezes, he told Ibrahim he was too scared to leave the flat. Willing to die for what he believed was a cause, but too scared to deal with the consequences. Sorry, I'll go back to my unbiased narration. The pair stayed there until finally arrested by armed police on the 29th of July. During the trial, the jury heard that Mohammed had scrawled graffiti on his cell walls whilst on remand at Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison. Al-Qaeda, the book that will guide you to victory, the words read. Be patient 
as you have been promised paradise. Yasin Omar was born on the 1st of January 1983 in Somalia. He came to Britain with his sisters in the early 1990s and spent much of his childhood in local authority care. In 1993, he was fostered for a time by Stephen Lamb and his partner Bernice Campbell. Mr Lamb told the trial Omar was not comfortable with the boundaries and rules set by Miss Campbell. On reaching adulthood, Omar was given his own flat and he would hang out with his friends, play computer games and watch television. But his friend, Stephen Bentley, said that during 2000 and 2001, Omar became increasingly attracted to Islam. He began wearing a robe and a hat rather than his western clothing and spoke of his support for the Taliban who he believed were establishing a truly Islamic state in Afghanistan. Omar often went to the Finsbury Park Mosque to hear the radical preacher Abu Hamza. Mr Lamb said he occasionally visited his foster son but lost contact in 2001. On one occasion when he visited he noticed that there was little food in the flat and said if Allah was so good, he would put food on the table. Omar took exception to this comment and asked him to leave. Mr Lamb tried to visit again, but Omar refused to let him in. Omar cut himself off from both Muslims who opposed his jihadi rhetoric and non-Muslim friends. He spent more and more time associating with Mukhtar Ibrahim. On one occasion in early 2005, Omar challenged the mosque's inam after he had condemned a Palestinian suicide attack in a sermon on the right path for Muslims. After Saeed Bukhari warned the congregation that suicide bombs were against Islam, Omar argued with him, accusing him of misleading the people. He later apologised and on the 16th of July, the Imam officiated the first part of Omar's wedding ceremony, the signing of the contract. According to the prosecutors, Yasin Omar was perhaps the second most important person in the plotting of the 21st of July attacks. Mukhtar Ibrahim had the idea, but it was developed with Omar's support. Omar's 8th floor flat in North London was the bomb factory. Between April and July 2005, more than 400 litres of hair bleach was brought into his home and chemically altered to become bombs. After the failure of the 21st of July attacks, Omar fled to Birmingham wearing a full-length face-covering gown known as a burqa, which he had taken from his mother-in-law. He was captured on CCTV with his tall frames standing out in woman's clothing. During the trial, he claimed that the 21st of July attacks were only ever intended as a stunt. He claimed he got the idea from Fathers for Justice campaigners who threw purple flour at the Prime Minister in the House of Commons in May 2004. Fathers for Justice is a father's rights organisation in the United Kingdom 
founded in 2001, the group aims to gain public and parliamentary support for changes in the UK legislation on fathers' rights, mainly using stunts and protests often conducted in costume. The stunts that usually get them publicity are things like climbing up to the balcony of Buckingham Palace dressed as Batman, perching on the clock face of Big Ben and chaining themselves to motorway signs. He told the court, I hoped that it would be televised, would be shown on TV and taken seriously, and that would put pressure on the government after they realised that people have gone to these lengths just to do a demonstration on Iraq. His eventual arrest was one of the most dramatic moments of the investigation. Twelve fully armed counter-terrorism officers who attracted him to a house in Birmingham burst in and moved through the rooms. Omar pulled on his rucksack and stood in the bath. Officers saw the rucksack and had to make a split-second decision as to whether or not it was full of explosives. The lead officer who confronted Omar saw the bomber's hand move downwards. Convinced he was going for the bomb's trigger, the officer zeroed his sights on Omar's head and released the safety on his gun. Amid all the shouting, a violent struggle took place with one officer using a taser stun gun and another punching Omar in the face to further subdue him. A barrister who was part of the prosecution team told the jury, We invite you to conclude that Omar's conduct on the 27th of July, consistent with his conduct six days earlier, was that of a man ready and willing to die. Just thinking aloud here, but what about this situation made the police act differently with Omar than they did at the tube station at Stockwell? Hussein Osman was born Hamdi Isaac Adias in Ethiopia in 1978, but moved to Italy at the age of 14, and from there travelled to Britain. On his arrival in late 1990, he claimed his name was Hussein Osman, and he was from war-torn Somalia. He admitted this was a deliberate deception designed to increase his chances of claiming asylum. And much like the way he settled in the UK, so much of Osman's story remained a mystery. As we learned earlier, Osman was living with his wife and children in Scotia Road, opposite Jean-Charles de Menezes. A torn-up picture of his wife was found in his abandoned rucksack after his bomb failed to explode at Shepherd's Bush. At his home, police found evidence of extremist material, including speeches by preachers involved in radicalisation and instructions for how to make a suicide vest. As I also explained earlier, Osman fled the scene of his attack, first by running along the live train track and by going through Sun's house before passing the entrance to the BBC Centre. It is believed he boarded the bus just before the A40 flyover where he was captured on CCTV. This was the first breakthrough that the police had in identifying him. Later that day, 
he arrived in Brighton after catching a train from Clapham Junction, where he lay low for a few days, before heading back to London to catch the Eurostar to Paris, before completing his trip again by rail to Rome. He was able to evade detection as he travelled from London to Paris using his brother's passport. The court heard how security services in the UK and Italy were able to trace him to his brother's Rome apartment by careful analysis of his movements using his mobile phone activity, which led to his eventual arrest on the 29th of July. During the trial, he preferred to be dressed in leisure wear rather than a suit and tie like his co-defendants. During the prosecution's presentation of events in court, his mental state appeared fragile and at one point he suffered a complete breakdown, standing up in the dock, ranting and raving. He was escorted out of the court and the trial continued in his absence. Osman's defence had been the statement he gave to Italian police, which was the same as the others. The event had been an elaborate hoax to draw attention to the injustices of the Iraq war. At the same time though, he could not explain why he had no specific plan as to their escape route once the hoax attacks had been carried out. The absence of an escape plan undermined his claims that they were not intending to die in the attacks. Also, if these were hoax bombs, it was hard for the prosecution to conceive why the peroxide needed to be boiled to increase its concentration. They also inquired why both Asadu and Yaya independently when buying the hydrogen peroxide asked for it to be supplied at 60-70% to 70% strength or the highest available percentage. Equally, it was hard to fathom for the prosecutor why nearly 100 gallons of hydrogen peroxide was needed unless its purpose was to increase the strength of the liquid. In the early hours of the 8th of June, however, whilst on remand, Osman suddenly changed his mind. He approached a prison officer, Ben Murray, to talk about his co-defendant and the alleged plot leader, Mukhtar Ibrahim. Mr Murray told the court, Osman told me Ibrahim was the brains behind making the bombs and trying to destroy parts of London. Osman stated that Ibrahim had bullied him into making the bombs and the distribution of such items. Osman said to me, he wanted to see someone about giving evidence against his co-defendants or going QE, which is Queen's Evidence. Queen's Evidence is evidence for the prosecution given by a participant or an accomplice to the crime being tried. But Osman at that stage had left it too late to turn Queen's Evidence as any evidence he would have given, its motive would have been questioned. During the summing up stage, prosecutors told the jury that Osman's decision not to take the stand exposed his desperate claims in Rome that the attacks were a hoax for the lies that they were. On Monday the 9th of July 2007, the jury found Mukhtar Saeed Ibrahim, Ramzi Mohammed, Yassin Omar 
and Hussein Osman guilty of conspiracy to murder. The prosecutors told the court in London on Wednesday the 11th of July at the sentencing hearing that the other two men charged in connection with the 21st of July terrorist plot would be retried after a unanimous verdict could not be reached. Mr Justice Fulford said before sentencing, I have no doubt they were part of an Al-Qaeda-inspired and controlled sequence of attacks. It is clear that at least 50 people would have died, hundreds would have been wounded, thousands would have had their lives permanently damaged, he told the court. Each was sentenced to life imprisonment. The recommended minimum term to be served was 40 years. So as we're starting to bring to a close this case, there are a few loose ends that I would like to tie up. The majority of the testimony which I've used for the first three episodes was taken from the inquest into the tragedy, so it'd be wrong not to talk about that. The inquest began in October 2010 and was spearheaded by Lady Justice Hallett, who acted as the coroner. Lady Justice Hallett had a very distinguished legal career. She was born in December 1949 and she was the daughter of a policeman who worked his way up from a beat constable to an assistant chief constable. She began practising law and was called to the bar in 1972 before becoming Queen's Counsel in 1989. She became the first woman to be the chair of the bar council in 1998. She became a full-time judge at the High Court in central London in 1999, receiving a DBE in the same year, ironically for this case on the 21st of July. She was promoted to the Court of Appeal in 2005 before becoming a member of the Judicial Appointments Commission in 2006. The inquests heard from 309 witnesses in person and a further 197 statements were read out in court. The remit of the inquests at the Royal Courts of Justice included investigating the emergency services response on the day and considering whether the MI5 could have prevented the attacks. After nine months, Lady Justice Hallett gave the following ruling. Speaking first about the emergency services response to the incident, Lady Justice Hallett found that none of the victims died because of the delays in the emergency response, but called for improvements in communication between transport bosses and the emergency services in a crisis. The findings also raised concerns about the funding available to respond to major crises. She said that the London Resilience Team, which led the response to any crises in the city, should review the provision of interagency major incident training for frontline staff, particularly with reference to the London Underground System. She said a review was needed of how Transport for London is alerted to major incidents declared by the emergency services and how it 
informs the emergency services of an emergency on its own network, including the issuing of a code amber or a code red, or ordering an evacuation. Lady Hallett demanded improvements in London's emergency and medical response, given the fact that it was due to host the 2012 Olympics. She called for a review of the level of cover the London Air Ambulance was able to provide and its funding, noting its reliance on volunteers and the vital role it played in tending to the injured on the 7th of July. She said, I'm concerned that London, a major global capital, host of the Olympics in 2012 and a prime terrorist target, should find itself dependent on corporate funding and charitable donations and upon professional volunteers giving up their limited free time in order to provide life-saving and emergency medical care. It was equally concerning that the capability to provide such care is limited. Lady Justice Hallett found that the MI5 could not have prevented the attacks but used her powers to ask Britain's domestic security services to learn further lessons. She warned of the potential dire consequences if her recommendations were not acted upon. The first of two recommendations for MI5 concerned undercover photographs taken before the attacks of the ringleader Mohammed Sadiq Khan. Some had said that MI5 had enough clues before Khan struck to assess that he was a dangerous terrorist, which the security services had denied. As mentioned in part 4, pictures of Khan and Tamweer were obtained by MI5 in February 2004 as part of an investigation into another terrorist plot. In April 2004, copies of the pictures were sent to the US to be shown to a state witness, Mohammed Junad Baba. But Lady Hallett said that the quality of the pictures were dreadful, with the one of Khan not even being shown to Baba. This was potentially important because Baba had met Khan at a training camp in Pakistan. Lady Hallett ruled, I recommend that consideration be given to whether the procedures can be improved to ensure that human sources who are asked to view photographs are shown copies of the photographs of the best possible quality, consistent with operational sensitivities. In her findings, Lady Hallett said, On the 6th of April 2004, Baba was shown one of the pictures of Tanweer that had been taken on the 2nd of February 2004 at Toddington Services. However, the photograph had been cropped in such a way as to render Khan virtually unidentifiable. A photograph of Khan cut in half was not shown to Baba at all and thus no opportunity was presented to him to identify him. The inquest heard evidence from a senior MI5 official who had defended their actions. Lady Hallett's findings said, He speculated that the cropped photograph of Khan 
was of such poor quality that it was not deemed worth showing to Baba. This of course begs the question of why the photographs of Tanweer and Khan were cropped in this way. They were dreadful. Lady Hallett also found, however, that Baba had failed to identify Khan and Tanweer when he was later shown better quality photographs, meaning that the original error had little to no practical effect. But she said, I have expressed my concerns given the serious possible consequences of any failings in this respect, and I have been assured that through counsel that the point is well understood by the security services. Lady Hallett's second recommendation for the MI5 concerned how it prioritised the level of threat posed by terrorist suspects and the records kept of how it reached those decisions. Lady Hallett found some confusion about the level of priority given by MI5 to investigating Khan, but crucially refrained from criticising it for not treating him as more of a threat. She found that inadequate recording of decisions risked dire consequences if potential errors could not be picked up by supervisors at MI5. She said, there are very limited recordings of the decisions in relation to Tanweer and Khan available to any reviewer and I heard little, if anything, from the MI5 on how the system has improved in this respect. Given the importance of these decisions and the uncertainties and inconsistencies in the evidence, there may well be a case for a better recording of decision-making. I feel unable to accept the MI5's assurances that all is now well without more. In this respect, therefore, I still have a concern. I should like the Director General to allay that concern, given the possible dire consequences of a flawed decision which cannot be properly supervised. Lady Hallett's findings, which were sent to the head of MI5 and the Home Secretary, said... I recommend that procedures be examined by the security services to establish if there is room for further improvement in the recording of decisions relating to the assessment of targets. Lady Justice Hallett also addressed the bravery of those who were there on the day. She said, One of the most impressive things we've learnt is how fellow passengers went to see if they could answer those cries for help and went into a war zone. Passengers swung from handrails into wrecked carriages and cradled the injured as they took their last breath, whilst trained medics off and on duty put their own horrors aside to save lives. Their courage is all the more remarkable as it goes against what psychologists call bystander apathy. A reaction which leads many of us to walk away from extreme situations. The men and women who stepped up were the exceptions. They were the medically trained whose expertise made them feel competent enough to be of use, but also the emphatic and altruistic who without first aid knowledge walked into the unknown. 
there was the astonishing response of passengers aboard a train that pulled up alongside the bombed tube carriage at Edgware Road Station. Three men, maybe more, alerted by cries of anguish, smashed through their carriage window and swung from handrails onto the wreckage. They had no idea what had happened, nor whether there was worse to come, yet they jumped in to help total strangers. One of them, an RAF wing commander, helped wounded John Tullock, whose head injuries were making him desperately want to go to sleep. Ground Captain Greg Staniforth kept him awake by chatting about their children. To this day, Professor Tullock, whose bloodied face became one of the more memorable images from the terrorist attacks, can recall which universities the captain's daughters were applying to at the time. The scenario itself didn't faze me, but that's not because I'm being blasé, the RAF medical support officer said. That's because I was used to seeing that scenario. What I couldn't relate to was the reality at the particular time. Usually, he would be supported by paramedics, doctors and nurses, he said. But in reality, there was not even a medical kit only an apple in his briefcase. This was at the time I started to think, how do I cope with this? At the inquest, Lady Justice Hallett told him Mr Tullock and others had every reason to be very grateful. His military training kicked in and he was brave enough to climb through the broken window. A second person who was identified as Suol Budi who, without any first aid training to draw on, went from the safety of his carriage into the wrecked remains of the one in front of him. We heard cries for help. It was instinctive to go and see what was happening and see if there was anything that we could do, he said. There he attempted to save Laura Webb by following the instructions of a commuter trapped in another carriage. I saw people banging on the window, making mouth-to-mouth kind of signs. I have never done first aid in my life, but I had seen it on TV. Another who stayed to help was Stephen Desborough, the last surviving civilian to leave the underground after the Allgate attack. He cradled and comforted Carrie Taylor in her final minutes. At the same time, He was waving and calling out words of encouragement to others with serious injuries and two stricken passengers trapped beneath a body and debris. Later he joked with one of the injured about the state of her hair and how he was gasping for a cup of coffee to try and distract her from the horrors of the day. A modest man, Stephen put his response down to instinct and first aid training. I don't think I could have walked on. I don't think it would have been in my nature. And if I was put in the same scenario again, I'd do it again, he said. There were people that walked on, and I don't blame them. Someone up there on that day said, Steve, you're going to have a bit of a bad day today. However, we think you're going to be one of the best ones to try and deal with it.
so just roll up your sleeves and get on with it. Although emergencies are part of their everyday working life, off-duty medics also show considerable courage by defying warnings to leave the tunnel in case there was a second device. We have already heard about Geraldine Quagber, a consultant neurologist in part one, who held her nerve to give life-saving assistance to others. On-duty paramedics who were already widely considered society's unsung heroes were also recognised at the inquests for their role. It was emergency technician David Tompkins' job to make sure no one alive was left behind at Russell Square. This meant checking everybody on the train, including a pile of them, to make sure they were dead. The coroner described it as a thankless task. Train driver Timothy Batkin, despite no first aid training, also showed great composure to shut off the power of the tunnel by touching together two copper wires running along the wall. Then together with four station staff, he went into the dark to form a human chain rescuing hundreds of passengers from the Aldgate disaster. Asked why he did that rather than help the injured, he said, I don't know if I was blinkered in any way, but it just seemed the best thing to do. Lady Hallett told him, You personally obviously acted with great presence of mind and courage. In the years that followed the bombings, honours were awarded to survivors, medics and transport workers, but the inquests, nearly six years on, put on record the heroic acts of many who missed out. For those who did get an invitation to the palace, the recognition did not always sit comfortably with them. Tim Coulson, who we spoke about in episode 2, was made a member of the British Empire in 2008. The coroner called him an extraordinary man. Another part of the inquest was to look into the responses of the emergency services. One point of note from the inquest was that there was a delay of 52 minutes in getting ambulances to Tavistock Square. Crews were only sent to the bus attack after reports of a second blast at 10.40, which was a controlled explosion of a suspect package. Jessica Ashford was the first paramedic to reach Tavistock Square, having been dispatched to Russell Square. She said the scene was devastating, with parts of bodies strewn all over the road. Jessica alerted her control at 9.57am and performed a quick reconnaissance before calling again at 10.05 demanding backup. The delays at Tavistock Square followed a separate half-hour delay in sending teams to Russell Square Underground Station. Graham Baxter was the first paramedic into the tunnel at Edgware Road. He called for eight more ambulances, but also told the inquests that he was frustrated to learn that crews from two separate stations nearby were not dispatched. Overall, only half of 201 London ambulances which were available on that day were sent to the attack scenes. 
crews who were stationed nearby were held back in case there was more attacks and some of them were watching the events unfold on the television. At the same time, controllers were struggling to identify free ambulances to ferry the wounded to hospital. They eventually called on neighbouring ambulance services and volunteers to help at the scenes. Helicopter emergency medical service paramedic Lee Parker wrote in his debrief form that he found these decisions inexplicable. Due to the number of casualties involved, we had to utilise various medical staff who ended up creating more work, he wrote. They did not understand triage and or major incident procedures. Other medical staff should be kept as far away as possible from these incidents. Jason Killings, Deputy Director of Operations at the London Ambulance Service, told the inquests that it had been the right decision on the day to hold back some crews. But in the closing days of the inquest, Lady Hallett heard about organised chaos and shortcomings at the ambulance service's disaster control room at Waterloo. Two people who were designated to crucial roles in the unfolding events were not trained for Gold Command events. Gold Command are the people responsible for the procedures used across the emergency services to coordinate the massive effort needed in a potential crisis. Only one member of staff was logging all of the emergency calls and she was not a trained typist capable of doing this at speed. Others were writing down important information on scraps of paper. As trivial as it sounds, the employee who was in charge of the control room's whiteboard about where help was needed was not tall enough to reach more than halfway up it. The staff brought into the disaster control room could not get to work immediately because ambulance service systems did not allow them to be logged in at two computers at the same time. Meanwhile, crews that had been dispatched were not getting messages back to the controllers because radio channels were blocked. In other evidence, Coroner Lady Justice Hallett heard that the ambulance service had switched from pages to mobiles to transmit alerts. Keith Grimmett, an officer in the London Ambulance Service Emergency Planning Unit, argued that pages were more reliable in a disaster situation. As we have heard throughout this case, during the 7th of July 2005, the capital's mobile network became overloaded with many people finding it impossible to make calls. The government's initial review of the events was that the rescue operations had not been hampered by poor communications. However, they changed their stance after the review. One of the key issues that emerged from evidence relating to the firefighters was their own safety rules. One group of firefighters said they could not enter the tunnel at Allgate because they had not received official confirmation that the live electric rail had been turned off. 
one police officer stood on the rail to prove that it was no longer live, but the crew still insisted that they needed confirmation from London Underground managers. Four other firefighters had already gone into the train. The first crew reached King's Cross Station at 9.13, but did not go to the scene until a second crew arrived at 9.42. That was because their communication protocols demanded having backup teams available. One police officer reported seeing firefighters waiting on the escalator for colleagues to arrive as the walking wounded began to emerge from the tunnel. The inquests also heard that over at Edgware Road, Assistant Divisional Officer Alan Davies, who was the head of Paddington Fire Station, refused to allow his men into the tunnel because of the possibility of a dirty bomb. Mr Davies had told the inquests that his training had been to expect a chemical, biological, radiological or nuclear also known as a CBRN incident, and he could not risk flooding the tunnel with personnel units until the situation was clearer. He accepted that evidence showed that the police officers and paramedics went into the tunnel before specialist officers had the chance to establish whether or not there was a CBRN risk. Meanwhile, there was also tensions between the services operating amid the chaos at Allgate. One paramedic said he encountered hostility from firefighters who did not understand that his role was to assess the situation and report back before doing anything else. The police had been switching to a new digital communications system, but in July 2005, they still could not use their radios underground. At one stage, the emergency services were using runners to get information from tunnels to the ticket halls. In September 2003, London's emergency services staged a massive training exercise to test their ability to cope with a chemical attack on an underground station. That exercise concluded that none of the radio systems were adequate. Some of these problems dated back to the horrific King's Cross fire in 1987. Sir Desmond Fennell's report into that disaster made a string of recommendations including ensuring that communications worked underground and that the emergency services and London underground workers could all talk to each other on the same systems. But 18 years later, the tube system was still not fully compatible with the three services. The London Underground system has since been updated. We are coming to the end of our look into the events that happened on Thursday the 7th of July 2005, and I just want to end with the last three things. As a mark of respect, the government ordered that the Union flag be flown at half-mast on the 8th of July. This was followed by a two-minute silence being held on the 14th of July 2005 throughout Europe. A permanent memorial to the victims was unveiled in 2009 by Prince Charles in Hyde Park 
to mark the fourth anniversary of the bombings. Finally, during the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympic Games in London, a minute's silence was held to commemorate those who were killed in the attacks. Which leads on to one of the most remarkable stories to come out of this. If you cast your minds back to episode 1 of this story, you may remember the name Martine Wright. The lady who ran down the stairs at Moorgate to board the train having been celebrating a bit too hard following London's successful bid. Martine was the worst injured and consequently the last rescued survivor of the 7-7 bombings. Martine was trapped for over an hour having lost 80% of her blood supply as well as both of her legs above the knees. But would she let this beat her? There followed a painful year of rehabilitation including learning to walk again on prosthetics. But did she stop there and just let her new disability rule the rest of her life? Did she how? Martine has since rebuilt her life, skydived, earned a pilot's license, became a wife and became a mother. But most importantly, she held on to her dream of getting to those Olympics in 2012. Only she didn't just get the tickets she wanted. She trained hard and became captain of the British Paralympic sitting volleyball team. Competing at the event, she thought she would only be in the stands to watch. Since competing for Great Britain at the London 2012 Paralympics, Martina has gone on to present high-profile sporting events on the BBC and Channel 4. These included the Paralympics and Invictus Games, as well as being a roving reporter at the 2016 Paralympics in Rio. She was the Helen Rollinson Award winner at the BBC Sports Personality of the Year in 2012 and was recently awarded an MBE for her services to sport and work as a role model for amputee athletics. Whilst playing sport, Martine wears her lucky number seven with pride, transforming what happened into a positive, but also in memory of those who lost their lives. By coincidence, Martine did her Paralympic training at sport facilities facing the hospitals she spent a year in, furthering her belief that she was always meant to make this remarkable journey. I spoke before about seeing her inspirational speech at a work conference in 2018, and it moved me to tears how she has been through everything she has in terms of losing everything she knew and still considers herself lucky. A truly amazing woman. Before I sign off, I just want to again pay tribute to those who have lost their lives. James Adams Samantha Badham Lee Harris Philip Beer Anna Brandt Kieran Cassidy Rochelle Chung Foyen Elizabeth Daplin 
Arthur Frederick, Carolina Cluck, Gamzee Gunnaral, Ojara Ikigwu, Emily Jenkins, Helen Jones, Susan Levy, Shelley Mather, Michael Matsushita, James Mays, Benaz Musaka, Michaela Otto, Atik Sharifi, Ihab Slimani, Christian Small, Monica Suchuka, Marla Trivedi, Adrian Johnson, Lee Baisden, Bernadetta Chichacha, Richard Ellery, Richard Gray, Anne Moffat, Carrie Taylor, Fiona Stevenson, Stan Brewster, Jonathan Downey, David Fawkes, Colin Morley, Jennifer Nicholson, Laura Webb, Anthony Fataya Williams, Jamie Gordon, Giles Hart, Marie Hartley, Miriam Hyman, Sahara Islam, Neetu Jane, Sam Lai, Shyanuja Parathan Sangari, Anat Rosenberg, Philip Russell, William Wise, Gladys Wundoa, Jean Charles de Menezes. So we have come to the end of the London case, and it's been incredibly hard for me to do. I thank you all who have been in touch with me about this, and your positive words have really spurred me on through times when I have really doubted myself to complete this. Before I go into the end bit, I just want to read you a message that one of my listeners sent me a few weeks back which really moved me. They've asked to stay anonymous, so I would respect their wishes. Hi, just listen to your podcast about 7-7. I've never contacted anybody about a podcast before, and I'd like if you kept my name private. I'm a driver on the Hammersmith and City line, which also includes the Circle line. I just wanted to say that it is appreciated that you focus on the victims and have talked about them most respectfully. I was very lucky not to be working that day. Many of my colleagues were not, and what they saw that day will live with them forever. As you said, you will be focusing on Edgware Road in the next podcast. I would like you to know that there is a train driver's depot at Edgware Road. When the bomb detonated just outside Prade Street Junction, many drivers, including station cleaners, run down onto the tracks to help people. The emergency services did not go onto the track because they needed confirmation that current had been switched off and they were also scared of secondary devices. It took them 40 minutes to get to the train. I am in no way criticising the rescue services. They have their protocol to follow, 
but people should know that my colleagues went to assist the blown up train and the one that was alongside it on the eastbound track to help people without a single thought for their own safety. I know a lot of people who are involved including drivers of the Allgate train and the Piccadilly line train. And whilst I was very lucky not to be at work that day, I can tell you that the legacy of 7-7 lives with all the drivers on the Hammersmith and City and Circle Line trains every single day. Thank you for reading this. All I can honestly say is thank you for sharing this with me and I hope that everyone now has a better understanding as to how this mindless act has affected so many lives. So that's it for this case. As I stated in the last episode, I'm going to do a couple of smaller episodes just to reset before going into the Christchurch case. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. Also a reminder that this podcast is on Patreon, so if you can afford to support the show in any way, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I have an Instagram account, so search truecrimefix or click on the link in the show notes. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.